It's good to be here tonight. I'll tell you, the original plan is on the schedule. Chisel is scheduled to leave after services. But once they found out that I was speaking, they got out of here as quick as they could. So you can put the pieces together there. No, I'm just kidding. It is it's great to be here tonight. It's great to be here this summer. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for all that you have done for me, for the outpouring love and support. I was telling Philip the other day that I was going through my phone and I saw one of the old notes that I had topped up. And it was actually a note to him. I was going to send it to him declining the offer to be here this summer. And that's the best message that never went through in my entire life. And I thank you for everything you've done this summer on behalf of, of all four interns. I'm also excited to be here tonight. Thank you for the elders for allowing me this opportunity. Thank you to my parents for, for driving up to hear me. And I hope that you'll get a chance to meet them after services conclude. But tonight we're going to be talking about three gardens, three decisions. I've had several people approach me today and say, what in the world is that title about? And I said, just wait till tonight and you'll, you'll understand. But life is full of decisions. We understand this from a very early age because we understand that things we do affect things that come after. Life is full of decisions. I asked my 7th and 8th grade boys this morning in class, I said, what are some decisions you have to make every day when you wake up? Listen to what they, listen to what they said. The first one is this, is will I wake up or not? The second one is this, they get better. What kind of cereal will I eat? Third one is, will I take a shower or not? <laughs> and the fourth one, and remember, this is 7th and 8th grade boys. How much makeup will I put on? <laughs> so parents, please come talk to me after, and we got some business to take care of. <laughs> but for us as, as grown-ups, well, I'm not a grown-up, but for you and for me, maybe our decisions aren't like that, but, but you understand that, that you have decisions you have to make every day. Maybe it's decisions at work, how you're going to put food on the table, where you're going to work, what you're going to do at work. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe you're having problems. What decisions are you going to do with that to, in order to fix them? Maybe it's in the family. Wherever it is, we have decisions that we have to make because we understand that what we do today affects what we do tomorrow. But in a spiritual sense, we have decisions that we have to make as well. And so tonight, I want us to look at three gardens that pose three different decisions that we have to make in life. So to begin, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in the very beginning, the very end, and then we're going to have a garden in between. The first garden is the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock of the field and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
and the rib that the woman got and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man skipping down to verse 24 it says therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed chapter 3 now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can we stop there for a second? Before we go any farther, let me ask you a question. Is are you trying to hide from God tonight? Are there things in your life that you are trying to hide from God tonight? Maybe things that only you know about and no one else does. But you think if you can keep it from other people that you can keep it from God. So you're trying to hide from it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we'll get back to Genesis there. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly... What does it say? Does it say to save those who are eagerly hiding from Him? Does it say to save those who are eagerly trying to keep their distance from Him? No, it says to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. To not, don't hide from God, but wait for Him. Back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3, rather. Starting in verse 9, picking up. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the, true, the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? But the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And then skipping down to verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east end of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
You see, today we understand that our current situation is fully contingent upon what happened there in the garden. If things had gone different in the garden, things would be different today. If they had not sinned in the garden, I'm sure someone would have along the way, but things would be different. You see, what really gets me is that Adam and Eve have any opportunity to eat of every tree of the garden. Notice verse 9 there in chapter 2. Verse 9 in chapter 2 says this, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, notice, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, they could have picked any tree to eat. They had everything in the garden to eat except one tree. Why in the world would they go for something? Why would they eat of the tree of death when they had the tree of life? You see, we think, how in the world could that happen? But we do it every single day. We choose arrogance over humility. We choose our time over God's time. We choose our ways over God's ways. We choose pleasure. We choose money. We choose, the list goes on and on. But the truth is this, is that we choose death over life every single day. Just as Adam and Eve did. Every decision that we make, every decision that we make, either brings us closer to God or farther away. There's no such thing as a decision that keeps you right where you were. It's either closer or farther. So today, in 2014, it's easy to look back to the Garden of Eden and say, why? Why did you do it? You had the tree right there. But at the end of the day, we can't look down on them because the same decision that they had is the same decision that we have. Will you choose life or will you choose death? The Garden of Eden. The second place I want to look at is in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, the garden that Jesus describes. Starting in verse 1 there in Matthew 13. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Go back a few pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. Keep that same scene in your mind. Matthew chapter 9, starting verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you notice what happened in, in Matthew chapter 13? 
Jesus is telling his disciples about all this seed that we need to be scattering, all these souls that need to be saved. But what does Matthew chapter 9 say? He says, there is a lot of work to be done, but not a lot of workers to do it. So therefore, pray earnestly for the harvest. When I think about gardens, I think about my experience with gardens. My dad and I and my brothers would help sometimes. But we, would, we planted a garden several summers. And don't go ask my dad too many things because he might tell you some things that I don't want him telling you tonight. But I, I do know he'll agree with this. Is that I enjoyed the rewards of the garden a lot more than I enjoyed the work. You see, I enjoyed eating what we came out of the garden, but I didn't really enjoy the work that went along with it. But in the same sense, earthly speaking, when we think of a garden, we can see the produce that comes from it. We can see the benefits that come from it. But a lot of times as Christians, we can't immediately see the effects that we have when we're planting these seeds. And so a lot of times in the garden of evangelism, we don't always see the results. Why is that? Because we don't do the growing. We just scatter the seed. Indira Gandhi once said, he said, my grandfather, my grandfather once told me that there are two kinds of people. Those who do the work and those who take the credit. He told me to try to be in the first group because there was less competition. You see, when it comes to spiritual gardens, many of you may have a garden here tonight and, and I can remember back in my youth days, my dad would always ask people, you know, how's your garden doing this year? And they would always take pride and take joy in how that they were doing. They would take credit for it. But when it comes to our Christian walk, when it comes to these seeds we're scattering, it's not about how much credit we can get, it's about how much glorification God can get. Will Rogers once was quoted as saying, he said, not everyone can be heroes because someone has to sit on the curb and clap as they go by. Earthly speaking, this is a very good principle. Athletically, in the workforce, everything, not everyone can be heroes because someone has to sit on the curb and clap as they go by. The sad truth is this, is that in the church today, there are far too many curb sitters. There's so much work to be done, so much seed to be scattered, but people just want to watch it get done. You see, when it comes to Christianity, there are no spectators. There are, but that's not the way God intended it to be. We all have a garden. Every single one of us who have put on Christ in baptism, we have a garden. And we are commanded through the gospel of Jesus Christ to scatter this seed so that He can do the increase. Exactly what was done through the 12 Questions campaign, and we are seeing results from that. But that's nothing we're doing. We scattered the seed, and God gave the increase. We all have a garden. What does your garden look like? Has seeds been planted? Are there crops? What is the soil like? Where are you planting? What are you watering with? You see, a lot of times I think we try to water stuff with earthly things. Earthly things are going to get us nowhere because if we don't have God in the midst of it all, if we don't have Him in the dead center, then transformation is never going to take place. What are you watering with? And lastly, are you in the garden working or are you on the wayside path? You see, when it comes to this garden that Jesus is describing here in Matthew, we have a question to ask ourselves. Are we going to work or are we going to watch the work be done? 
the garden that Jesus described. And lastly, let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. In, in the last few days of Jesus' life, the garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Jesus knew that this was it. But I love verse 39 in Luke's account because he says this, he went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. His routine didn't change. Why? Because he knew that this was his time. Did you notice verse 39? He's sitting there and he is pleading with God. He says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you be done. Do you notice the same man that said this said the same thing in John chapter 14 and verse 6? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so in this very instance, he's saying, Lord, if this is going to pass, let it pass. But I think in the back of his mind, he knew that he was going to go on that cross. As we sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels. I think we take that lightly a lot of times. Because he could have. Just like that, it could have been over. But he endured everything that he had to endure for each and every one of us here. Never before have we seen Jesus so emotionally distraught. He faced a raging storm of Galilee, totally composed and unruffled. He faced demonic opposition with total composure. He faced everything the world had to offer with complete self-discipline. But for the first time, not in the garden. Jesus did not hide his emotions, and the disciples saw it. Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking? Because they were there. They were there all along. From the very beginning, they were there with Jesus in his ministry. They saw all the miracles. They saw all of the, everything that he did, all the troubles he went through. And for the first time, not are they relying on him, but he is relying on them for the first time in all of the Gospels. Think about how, I, can't, I don't even know words to describe what they were feeling when they saw their Savior going through what he was going through and it hadn't even begun yet. What was going through their mind? 
I can only imagine Jesus in, in, when he needed them the most. He needed them the most in the garden. And he goes away. He says, watch right here and I'll be back. And so he goes over here and he prays. And I can just assume that he's thinking, oh, they'll be there for me when I get back. And so he goes back over here and they're asleep. But he gives them a break that time and he goes and does it again. And he comes back again and they're asleep again. And so for the third time, he does it one more time and they're still asleep. You see, if this would have been in any other instance in the Gospels, I don't think it would have been as powerful because in this instant, this is when Jesus needed them the most. They fell asleep on their Savior when He needed them the most. Where does Jesus need you the most? Is it at work when people are going to earthly things to try to fill that void and you're the only one there who's a Christian? but you don't have the nerve to say anything? Young folks, is it at school when you go back to school and you see all these people participating in, in idolatry and all these things, putting other things before God, but you don't want to say anything? Husbands, wives, is it in your marriage when there's times when you need to, to look to God for biblical advice, but you just want to try to do it on your own? Where does Jesus need you the most? But the most sobering thought about this whole instance is... In this passage, Jesus came back to check on his disciples three times. He came back three times. For me and for you, he's only coming back once. You see, they had a chance after the first time to stay awake for their Savior. They had a chance after the second time to stay awake for their Savior. But when Jesus returns for us, there's no second chance. There is no second chance. We're either awake or we are asleep. You know, and I don't know where, where it is in your life where Jesus needs you the most, but this instance that we read about in the Garden of Gethsemane is very applicable to you because He expected His disciples to be there for Him when He needed them the most. Are you there for Jesus when He needs you the most? Matthew chapter 24. We're fixing to wrap it up. Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 42. It says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. December 7th, 1941. A 110-minute attack 2,335 U.S. servicemen killed, 1,143 wounded, 68 innocent civilians killed. We know it today as the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And you may have heard this before, but let me reinform you. Did you know that the Japanese strategically planned what day they were going to attack on? They chose a Sunday morning, Sunday, December 7th, 1941. Why? Because they expected Americans to be 
asleep. They wanted to come when they least expected it. When the Japanese commander Fuchida called out, Torah, 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 meaning tiger, tiger, tiger. He, he said this upon flying over Pearl Harbor, and it was a message telling the entire Japanese Navy that they had caught the Americans by surprise. Do you think the story would have unfolded differently if we knew that they were coming? Absolutely. Do you think today that things would unfold differently as far as world religion if everyone knew exactly when Jesus was coming? Absolutely. But the assurance that we have as Christians is that though we may not know when He is coming, we know that He is coming. And He has given us everything that we need in order to stay awake. But the question is tonight, when Jesus needs you the most, you've said you, you know where He needs you the most, but I want to even bring it down farther. Tonight, at this instance, are you awake or are you asleep? And if you're awake, glory be to God, I pray that you continue it. I pray that you will bring others along with you so that we will all be prepared when Jesus comes again. But the reality is this, is that in a, in a number this large, there are many here tonight who are spiritually asleep. When Jesus returns, it's not going to be once or twice or two, two or three times. It's going to be once. We have one shot. Either we're awake or we're asleep. So tonight... If you are asleep, whether or not you've put on Christ in baptism, maybe that's why you're asleep. You haven't given your life over to God yet. Or maybe you've put Him on in baptism and you just realize that you've kind of veered away from the path that you know that you need to be on and you're asleep. Please, the Lord is pleading with you. Do not leave here tonight until you are prepared. Please come us together.